Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Push it real good. Are you are you nervous at all about this conversation? Are you nervous about do you do you have what it takes? This is a big one. <laughs> this is the big the big guns have come out on this one. Well, well, we're not talking about Vertigo or Citizen Kane or eight and a half. <laughs> eight and a half. Did you like my comment on the poll? It was rather snarky, I thought. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> I love that you're doing these Facebook polls, even if there are only five of us who ever actually respond. I don't, even I'm going to yeah. call that a representative sample. <laughs> it's a representative of something. That's right. Oh. Yeah, they're fun to do. Hopefully, uh, you know, more people will come to our Facebook page. I've been putting up uh, periodic polls trying to get people's thoughts. I like that. Yeah. Why have we uh, Why have we gathered here this evening, Andrew? Uh, tonight we are going to discuss the fantastic and uh, and dark film, The Maltese Falcon, the animated classic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I may have watched the wrong version. <laughs> <laughs> talking about the animated classic. That's right. No, I, I. What is that film company? There is a company out there who every time a movie, like a new animated movie, is released, they release like the cheap fake version of it, and they get it out in stores just in time so that parents who aren't paying attention will accidentally buy the completely <laughs> wrong one with like horrible animation. Just bad all around. Just super cheap, cheap, cheap. That was that, that was DreamWorks for a while. <laughs> hey now, wow. I know. What what are you gonna well, do? Yeah. <laughs> no, yes, the animated classic, the Maltese the Falcon. The Maltese Falcon. Uh and now this was uh this I what a great first of all what a great movie uh humphrey bogart mary astor released 1941 this is part of our john houston conversation our ongoing potentially never-ending john houston <laughs> conversation it could go on forever it really could. this one this one was uh written and directed by the good houston and uh uh it is uh based on the book the maltese falcon by dashiell hammett from 1930 you know, I've always said Dashiell Hammett, but I've just learned that it's actually DeShiel. Right. It's DeShiel. That's what I that's exactly what no, I said. I, I never knew that. I've gone <laughs> my whole life saying Dashiell Hammett. You know what? I, I see now you've got me totally second guessing. You're it, so did you hear this in the making of? Yeah. Did you because I was every, listening to that too, but I was skipping around and I don't think I actually heard it. Yeah, everybody says DeShiel. DeShiel Hammett. 
you know, he should have an apostrophe or a capital S or something in there. <laughs> He's totally messed us up. That's right. <laughs> Generations of, of, uh, of both, uh, uh, you know, literary uh, connoisseurs have messed up DeShiel's name. I know, I know. All right. So, uh, DeShiel Hammond, 1930, and uh, this, uh, the Maltese Falcon, um, how would you, what would you say? It um, is a, a major milestone in uh, ushering in the uh, film noir uh, movement genre. Yeah, it actually, yeah, I mean, it's it's a milestone in a number of ways, and that's definitely the one of the big ones, is that... To many, the Maltese Falcon is considered the first film noir film. It's it's uh, funny. Do you have this feeling? I'm just going to say this before we get yeah. serious. I have this feeling as I'm watching this movie. Did you have yourself? Did did you ever find yourself saying, "God, what a total stereotype"? <laughs> like every two minutes, you turn around and there's a stereotype. And you're like, yeah. Oh man, what a cheap knockoff this would have been if it weren't the first. <laughs> <laughs> weren't the first one that all the rest were based on. Exactly. Yeah, it really did kind of set the stage for uh, film noir. And not to say that this type of story wasn't out there, because obviously DeShiel Hammett's book was out there. There were plenty of authors already writing these kind of gritty, uh, you know, crime, underbelly sorts of stories. Um, a lot of them um, were published in the... Um, Oh, what was the name of the uh, the the read that everyone was, was the, reading? The black, um, yeah, blah, the black, blah, blah, uh, the black something. We'll get to oh, it. Oh, for we'll crying out it. loud! No, so keep talking, and I'll find it. Yeah. So, you know this this was one of those stories that came out in that, and it was a it was a serial like a lot of these were. It was all these these crime serials, and it, interestingly enough, actually, uh, I think it was Jack Warner's son, Jack Warner one of the brothers, Warner. Um, his son is actually the reason that Warner Brothers ended up with the Maltese Falcon because he read, he, he loved these stories and he read the first part and loved it so much. And, and it ended. He didn't get to see how it ended. It was, you know, to be continued. And so he told his dad that he, it was such a great story and he wants to see how it ends. And so his dad went and bought the rights so that they could have it. And he so bought these rights from from the original serialized version of the novel, right? In the Black Mask between Black 19, mask. 1929 and nineteen thirty. Thank you, thank you. Yes, and so um, they bought the rights, and then they had it. And it's actually uh, they went into production right away, and they made a version of it in nineteen thirty one that was terrible. And, and they uh, made another version of it <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> We're gonna take another crack at it with Betty Davis. <laughs> called Satan Metal Lady, and uh, man, I tell you, the uh, they really went for uh, comedy and hijinks in that version of it. Have you seen that one? I, I've only seen the bits and pieces that they put in the um, in the making of of huh. uh, the Maltese Falcon, and it's it's almost embarrassing because I mean it's it's basically turned Sam Spade into like you know I think uh, at one point Betty Davis pulls a gun out of him and he jumps and squeals like a girl and grabs onto a door frame and like tries to like climb up it <laughs> it's like really silly and uh, you know there was a little known writer working at 
uh, Warner Brothers at that time. I shouldn't say little known. I mean, um, but certainly no more than a writer at this point in time being John Huston, who um, really liked writing. And he kind of got into Hollywood from his father, Walter Huston, a great actor who we'll talk about um, in one of these John Huston sure. uh, bits at greater length, um, namely the uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. But um, his father got him into the kind of got him into the business, got him hooked. And uh, John Huston worked at writing scripts for for Warner Brothers for a number of years. One of his scripts, I believe it was Juarez, he felt was so horribly ruined by the actor and the the I think it was Paul Paul Muni playing in Juarez. Um, he totally had the script rewritten for himself. And John Huston was so soured by that experience that he said, I, I have to direct because that's the only way I'm going to really be able to control uh, the stories that I write. And he never considered himself a great writer, but he, he wanted to make sure that what he uh, made was exactly how he wanted it. And so um, he, he asked Jack Warner if he could direct. And Jack said, well, give me a good movie out of High Sierra, write that as a good script. And so he and uh, his co-writer wrote High Sierra, which was a fantastic film, wonderfully directed by Raul Walsh. And, uh, um, and from that, it was such a great script that he got, uh, he got the green light to go ahead and direct his version of The Maltese Falcon. Now, his version of The Maltese Falcon, uh, where does the... does the Maltese Falcon get uh, get its overall tone. Where does he uh, where does he come with uh, and and bring this sort of at the time this sort of new approach to uh, sort of lighting and presentation and 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 these aspects of of kind of the production that have come to define the style of film noir. You know, a lot of that came from the words of the original source material and and something that John Huston has actually said about the source material is he, the other two versions, the writers felt obligated just by the fact that they were adapting it, that they had to change it. And John Huston said, no, no, if, if you're, if you're going to adapt it and make it into a movie, the words are already there. Use the book as your source. And so he, he wrote the script very close to the source that Sheil Hammett already had on the page that the, the just crackling dialogue that has come to define noir was right there in the book. John Huston is very adept at writing great dialogue, and so he certainly contributed to it, but that was a big element. Now, as far as the look, Warner Brothers already was kind of known for its crime films of the time. It very popular making all these kind of low-budget crime movies. In fact, that's where Humphrey Bogart came from, and we'll talk about um, him definitely because he's another one of these key elements really kind of brought forth from this movie. But those crime films, I think, also helped kind of define the look and tone of the film. Um, and this film, I, you know, I will say, being the first film noir does not really get into the Dutch angles as much as later film noirs. Uh, in fact, it's a good comparison looking at this, which is considered the first film noir, compared to Touch of Evil, Orson Welles' film from 1957, uh, which is uh, considered the, the last of the film noirs. Uh, officially, I guess, if there's mm -hmm. any official stamp of what film noir really is. But um, if you look and compare the looks of those two films, it's a drastic difference in the time from when they began to when they ended. Much, I mean, Orson Welles' film is much more a lot of Dutch angles, 
just a lot of shadow, a lot of darkness. This film definitely has it, but I think it was still riding on the lines of the crime films that Warner Brothers had been doing, yet it defined it so well. It defined those dark moments, like the moment that always strikes me is when um, Sam Spade is is woken in the middle of the night uh, by the phone ringing. Uh, he answers it and finds out that his partner's been killed. Mm -hmm. Just the darkness of that scene, the way that those scenes play out and the darkness in those scenes works so well that I think that's those are the things that people began pulling. And by nature of wanting to make uh, enhance that mood, they always would take it a little farther. And uh, and you've got you know the the femme fatale in in O'Shaughnessy. You've got the uh, the great pairing of Gutman and Cairo, um, uh, Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre. I mean, just a fantastic rounding out of the cast who really worked so well at uh, playing these characters that were defined so brilliantly in their dialogue and their performances. I mean, it's it, all around, it's just such a dark story and it's done so well that I, I think the fact that it was done so well is by default what really defined all the rest of the noir films. It is so interesting what it was going on at the time and how this, when you look at how this movie uh, sort of got made and I, I, you know, what I was looking at researching the film, I, I think the, the number of editorialists who touched on the, uh, the, how terrified the motion picture production industry was of touching on uh you know concepts like homosexuality in this film and getting this film past the censors and talking about this film as gritty and dark and and something that you know the the, the public wasn't ready for um at dealing with the you know the Hayes board uh, it, it's it, it's one of those things that it's it's sort of hard for us to uh to wrap our heads around i think as modern popular cinema goers because we are, I think, a little bit more uh, sort of numbed to, you know, so many of those of what those concepts were in 1941 would have been quite shocking. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wonder what your your take on this film is in in terms of the the cultural tone that it was uh, sort of hitting its head against. Well, I mean, as far as like what what kind of drove it to have this look? In, well, the the, the look and the overall presentation. I mean, when you look at the at the way the the characters relate uh, around, you know, for example, uh, Humphrey Bogart's relationship, or Sam Spade's relationship with with Effie, and with uh, you know Archer's wife, the the widow. Uh, you know, those those sorts of relationships are are um, you know. Uh, uh, you know, talking about things like "What's your boyfriend up to, uh, uh, Tom?" You know, making these these uh, allusions to homosexuality and Cairo's character in general. Peter Lorre plays this wonderfully effeminate uh, criminal that I think caused uh, tossed up quite a bit of controversy and and caused this movie to be um, you know sort of culturally relevant in a time that was uh, that ended up being um, challenging to mainstream audiences at the, as in just the same way that it was, um, you know, that it was exciting and gritty and dark and, and, uh, you know, engaging. And those are definitely things that, um, 
that did add to this noir element. They were elements that they were able to put in that made a film grittier. It touched on those topics that other films wouldn't touch on. Um, certainly, you know, everything coming out of the Hayes office and all the things that they weren't allowed to do at the time because it was lewd or, or, or you know, subversive, they were finding ways to get past the board. And, I mean, it certainly wasn't just noir films, but because of the dark, gritty crime nature of the noir films, it definitely added an edge to all of that. And so, yeah, some of the, the homosexual innuendo or just the, the, the just the, innuendos period whether it's homosexual or not like you had um as you know sam spade his partner dies um he, he doesn't really blink an eye it's it's not i mean it obviously wasn't him who did it but it's not like he was that surprised and he wasn't like that upset about it and then he goes to his office the next day the widow of his partner is in his office and the first thing they do is kiss so, it's, yeah, you know, and then she asks him if he did it because, you know, he said the only way that we can be together is if he's gone. It's like it, even even Sam Spade, the detective, is not a good guy. It's a really interesting uh, that, mark. That, yeah. You know, that was my next question for you is what you know, how would how do you characterize Sam Spade as as sort of the at the time, the new antihero? Yeah, he really it, it was a very interesting thing to do where these noirs i mean there's there's something about him that is um is so attractive and it draws you in and even though he's you know he he clearly had been having some sort of of an affair with with his partner's wife or there had been some relationship there um you know we're not that um bothered by it and the fact that that he's um gets involved in this whole mystery of the Maltese Falcon and almost seems to dismiss the, uh, you know, the whole idea of, of uh, the what's right and what's wrong as far as getting involved because it could mean a lot of money. It's, it's like he almost completely dismisses that and just joins in with the bad guys. And it's not until all of a sudden the Maltese Falcon, it turns up at the end that it's not there that he kind of comes back to his detective self and and um, figures out that O'Shaughnessy is the one who killed his partner and sends her up for it. And it's it's you know I have I have to wonder what would Sam Spade have done if the Maltese Falcon was really jewel encrusted and made them all rich? <laughs> would he have just quit his business and run off and not worried about turning uh, Bridget in? I mean, where would he have gone from there? So it's really interesting. And I think it's only because somebody like Humphrey Bogart plays him that it works so well. Because even though he's just, you know, he's, 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 a, he's a bad guy, but man, you just, you, you root for him the whole time because he's so sharp and he's so witty and he's always on. And the conversations he has, like the, the banter back and forth with any of the characters, whether it's, whether it's uh, Sidney Greenstreet as Gutman or, or Peter Laurie as Cairo or any of them, Mary Astor as, as Bridget. I mean, it, they're just, they're barbed. I mean, the, it's just so great to listen to. And it really pulls you in. I, I can't help but get pulled in every time, regardless of of how shady I think Sam Spade is. But you know, I I I don't characterize Sam Spade as as shady, and I think that's why I 
I like him so much and why I feel like as a character, what, what Houston was able to pull out of this character and put on the screen through, through Bogart is, is so appealing to me. And it's what makes these, it's what makes great characters so great is that they illustrate some characteristic of ourselves that we wish we were better at, or we were, we, you know, we were more honest with. And in, in the case of Sam Spade, it's this inner nature of sort of improvisation. You know, he is always on and he is always able to take any situation and turn it into his favor. And so, you know, is he necessarily, you know, sort of cruel intentioned, uh, or is his, you know, is he responding to the news of Archer's death uh, simply as, you know what, this is yet another situation that is sad and we have to move on and figure out how to make this move. And in that case, he is very clear. I want you to take his name off the door and put my name uh, across the door here. And that's then we're going to be done with that part and we're going to move on. And and sort of there's that there's that aspirational feeling, I think, as we watch him, that dark sort of hidden side of us. It's like, gosh, I wish I could be more like Sam Spade. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know necessarily believe he is uh, good or evil, but simply an agent of circumstance. And that's what makes him so palatable in this movie and and so kind of endearing uh, in a way. You know, you're right. And actually, I, I, I think when I said he, he was shady, I shouldn't have uh, come across as being like an immoral character because really... You're right. He's much more of just an amoral character. Uh, amoral character. That's the yeah, word. It, right. and, and you're right. Being a man of, the cir- of, of circumstance and of the moment really does define him. You know, one moment he's, you know, he's as excited about the possibilities of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars from this black bird that they're going to get. Um, the next moment, once their dreams have been crushed and they realize that it's a, it's a phony, um, he turns on his detective hat, you know, right. uh, it's the same way that um, that Gutman and Cairo, they switch off. I mean, Gutman's devastated that it's a fake. And then he has his moment, and then he just kind of like takes a deep breath and goes, well, I'll just keep hunting. I've been hunting this long. I'll keep going, and I'm going to off to Russia to see if I can track it down out there. Well, and that's uh, that I think is one of the things that's so interesting about this film, and maybe which is a, def- uh, you know, part of the uh, uh the defining characteristic of of noir is that there is not just one character that embodies that agent of circumstance mantle that uh, you know O'Shaughnessy it, it has very much the same uh capacity and so does Cairo and so does Gutman they are all agents of their own improvisation and and what is so brilliant about this movie is watching them sort of play together and 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 how we determine who the hero is is first of all who the camera is focused on you know for in the case of this film ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time, uh, but but also who is simply scripted as better at it and and in this film uh, you know Sam Spade is the expert at weaving these situations and the rest of the characters no matter how hard they try are not. And and that, I think, is what's so interesting, and particularly at the end, uh, when you realize that, in fact, the film itself, the story itself, insofar as all the characters are searching in their own way for this jewel-encrusted bird, the film wasn't about the bird at all. The film was about figuring out, you know, was about the murder, and we get that answer, and, you know, I, I guess that's another question, is, is that... Um, is the res- resolution of the murder and the answer to the question of Archer's death 
um, you know, is that enough as the rest of these characters go on their treasure hunt? Well, and that's that really is a good point, because I think if you analyze this by modern storytelling techniques and you look at, you know, all of the different, you know, screenwriting tools that are out there to determine, is this a good story? Is this a solid script? And you just analyze the basics of the story. I think in large part it's going to come up. It's a pretty it, it's not there's not a whole lot of stuff going on here. There's not a lot of character growth. I mean, tell me one character who grows over the course of the film. Right. No. And there's a ton of exposition. There's a lot of exposition. This is a totally different type of film from a different age. And uh, but the fact that it stands up so well, I think it just it, it boils down to the characters, even though there's not like a, a character who's got, a, you know, a, a wonderful ar uh, character arc that you can see how they started and how they ended. And you don't have these um, relationships and, and you don't get to see how things grow and change over the course of the film. It's a simple detective story. It's a it's I mean, to a certain extent, it's a whodunit, although it's not even the whodunit's not that interesting. Right. Well, and that's it, the that's the well. Go, you finish your point. Yeah, what it boils down to is really how fascinating these characters are and their amazing interactions. And I think for me, that's what makes it exciting. So, so I I want you to get back to the to the the sort of the use of the bird as the MacGuffin because we've talked about yeah. the MacGuffin a couple of times. And and is you know uh, this movie it this is sort of the seminal movie here. I mean we're we are led to believe that we're in a story about this you know this bird and you know what the climax of the film. Uh, the emotional climax of the film between our two, uh, you know, prime characters and the prime sort of love relationship or the romantic relationship comes down to the fact that it's not about the bird at all. Right. Uh, so, yeah. you know, how, as you say, I mean, by by modern techniques this, or by modern standards, this may be may not be uh, this may not hold up. And this, you know, if somebody were trying to get this very script made today, it would it would, you know, likely be circular filed. But, um, you know, if if that's the case, why is it so compelling when we watch it in black and white and we're led down this road? Uh, you know, and why is it that by and large we don't feel betrayed? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, uh, obviously, the MacGuffin carries a lot of weight in this film. It's, um, I think, the the nature of his answer about the MacGuffin is is one of the most uh, truthful and simple answers. You know, it, it, how elusive things are in life, and it seems so simple. You know, when he answers the uh, the cop. And when he says, what is this? And he says, stuff the dreams are made of. It's, it's so eloquently put. It's, it's, people have these things in their life. And I guess you could you know, psychoanalyze the film as to just that statement and what it means and how, how people really... It's a story about people who are always in pursuit of things. And you always want the next best thing, right? And you're never, you're never satisfied when you finally get it. And that's, in a large sense, I guess, kind of the psychoanalytical version of what the, the Maltese Falcon is. And I think that in and of itself is a really interesting MacGuffin that pulls people in. But then I think, uh, I think the, the big thing is just how well the film is made and how well the story is written and how well these actors perform the roles. They are all so good. 
um, in every sense that it's it's just you you can't forget it. I mean, the lines when all the lines that uh, Humphrey Bogart says to Mary Astor at the end. I mean, it's you can't help but uh, but want to back it up and and memorize it because it's so quotable, and that the, the whole film is just bubbling with lines that are just imminently quotable and you've heard people say them before and you know exactly where they're from and that i think is the definition of why this film stands up it is uh, i i think that's so true and and back to the earlier point you know everybody everybody wants to be as smooth as sam spade everybody needs an effie in their lives uh you know i mean that's when you watch this movie it's it's hard not to see yourself in some you know in some character uh and it, and it makes it so uh, so appealing. Um, you know, we haven't talked at all. Uh, we haven't talked much about the, um, you know, the, the story itself. I mean, we've kind of talked uh, in, in circles around it, but one of the things that I, I noticed when you talk about just, again, things that would have been frowned upon had this movie been looked at today, it's, it's kind of a tough story. If you just watch it the very first time, I mean, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Um, I, I know I watched it in a film noir class in college. I cannot remember if that was the first time I saw it or if I saw it before that. But uh, it's it's been you know since back in college. Yeah, yeah. I so I yeah. right. I mean, it's been it's been a long time. And yeah. uh, I, it, but but my you know in, in every time I sit down and watch it, you know, there's that there's that fantastic. Uh, that fantastic open, you know, where uh, you know if he comes in and says. Uh, you know, there's there's a woman here, a client. Yeah, I don't know, but you got to see her. She's a knockout. You know that that right. open when she's he's, she's trying to set her up with a set him up with a client, right. and 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 she comes in that scene, uh, and then the transformation of uh, Wonderly to O'Shaughnessy uh, is it it throws people when I watch it with people who haven't seen the movie or who have never seen the film. Uh, that's where I'm going to lose them because getting into the film is challenging. It, yeah. I, I find it difficult to do. So can, can you walk through the the sort of basic, uh, uh, if you can, walk through the basic plot of the film and, and just, you know, 60 seconds or less? Uh, 60 seconds or less. And go. Uh, yes. Ruth Wonderly hires Sam Spade and his partner, Miles Archer, to follow her missing, or to find her missing sister, who's with a man named Floyd Thursby. Um, there she's supposed to meet with this Thursby and so Archer goes to to follow him and uh that night he goes to help instead though Archer gets killed Sam Spade now has to figure out what's going on and how his partner got killed he finds that Wonderly has checked out of the hotel and then he gets a, another visit from her though and finds out that her name is actually uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy so and that her whole story was completely bogus. The whole thing about finding Thursby was that she, she, Thursby was her partner in this quest for this black bird, the Maltese falcon. She kills Thursby because um, she wants all the money for him for herself. And she also killed Archer. Uh, there's giving away the ending right there and the mystery behind it. And... Um, then they, uh, Sam Spade finds out that she's not the only person after this Blackbird. There's also Joel Cairo and, uh, and uh, Gutman. 
and inevitably they all come together. They figure out the where the blackbird is coming in from. They get it, and it's uh, a fake, and uh, that's the end. <laughs> <laughs> well done. I'm not sure if you did that in 60 seconds, but that was really noble. That was a I noble had 60 effort. seconds in my head. I was like, faster, faster. And, and I just, I really petered out there at the that end. Was, that, but really still, no, it was, it was strong. That was a strong push toward the <laughs> was, end. Oh. Uh, you know, I think that's oh. a, that is, a, you know, it's a, probably as simple as you could make it. Uh, given the number of characters, this is an, an unbelievably sort of complex, uh, twisted uh, tale. Uh, and, well, and it all takes place in a very confined space. Again, this characteristic of production, you know, all the, you know, you're in a, I think, what are we in three sets uh, across this? But with the, uh, well, maybe five total, I guess, or four the boat, well. his house, the office, and the the big hotel room. Uh, and uh, on her her apartment, yeah, that's true. And then there's the streets, but we we only go outside that you know twice. I think when when Archer is shot, and then at the uh, when he goes down to the docks. No, there's we also see him when he's walking down the street and. And the Gunsel is no the, the Gunsel. You're right. That's that's true. So, but but in general, it's a fairly claustrophobic film, and there aren't that many characters uh, in this film to keep track of, and yet the dialogue is so fast and and smart uh, yeah. that it this is a movie you sort of have to work at to 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 start peeling it back. Yeah. Um. Uh, so thoughts on production? There were there were uh, I guess. To start off with a point of trivia, uh, the only the only scene that uh, Bogart is not in is the assassination of Archer. Yeah, this guy only, pulled yeah. his weight in this movie. Well, and uh, we'll talk about this now because this, uh, going back to what I said right at the beginning, there this film was very um, important for several reasons. One, I said it's considered the first of the film noir films. Two, it was John Huston's first film, uh, which he, he made, he got to direct, um, because he did so well with high Sierra. Um, and three, this is the film that really established Humphrey Bogart as a leading actor. Right. Before this, he was one of of uh, the murderers row. He was one of the 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 heavies that was in all of the Warner Brothers films and he really hadn't had a chance to shine as somebody who could carry the film. He was in High Sierra, but it wasn't uh um uh, again, it was just kind of the the bad guy in that film and, and it, he definitely still carries that darkness over into this film, but um I I can't remember who said it. I think it was Ebert actually in his review of this where he actually comments, even though he's dark, for some reason, because it's Bogart and the way he plays it, it all it comes off almost as if we're sensing some some pain and some something from his past, right? Like he's right. closed himself off. There's there's something interesting about the way that Bogart plays it. And so it was a very important film. And I think Bogart was happy to be in every scene because this was his chance to shine. And from this, you know, this led to Casablanca and, you know, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre and African Queen and all the other fantastic films that he ended up doing over the course of his career. So well, and I, was, think, I think that's a really good point, especially because, you know, when you have... Uh, when you note that the original character to play Sam Spade was George Raft, uh, and exactly, uh, you know, who rejected a number of roles that Bogart ended up that ended up being really keystone roles for Bogart in his career. 
uh, and, uh, you know, it really defined him as, um, you know, as this, you know, agent of circumstance. And, 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 you know, that, that put the guy, uh, put the guy on the map being willing to take those kinds of career risks. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. Uh, George Raft absolutely refused to be in this film with a first time director helming it. Right. He just, he wouldn't do it. And it, to, to his loss, I mean, and to, to all of our gain because we got Humphrey Bogart out of it. Uh, and Raft had turned down High Sierra and rumored to have turned down uh, Casablanca. Yeah, yeah. What an idiot. What an idiot. <laughs> idiot. And who talks about George Raft these days? Oh, all the people in the George Raft fan club are, are yelling at us right now, I wonder... waving their fists. <laughs> if you're in or the founder of the George Raft fan club, please write in. We look forward to a hot debate. Please write. Andy Nelson. <laughs> Uh, okay. So, uh, uh, let's, let's talk more. Where, what do you want to go from there? You want to talk more about casting or more about production? Uh, this was obviously at a time when films cost a lot less. And I, I do just want to throw out that the budget for this film was about, about $300,000 and they shot it over two months. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing thinking that a film like this gets made for that sort of money <laughs> considering what films cost these days. Obviously, there's inflation to take into account, but it's it's just so nice hearing a number like that, you know, when you're making a movie. So, yeah, right. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. And, uh, okay, so the film, the cinematography was, uh, uh, let's see, see, you're going to make fun of me probably because I'll pronounce this wrong. Arthur Edson. I was going to say that, and then I was going to, but I was going to, you know, Arthur Edison, uh, just to see. Edison, but I, Edison. Yeah. A, a really, really big um, cinematographer of the time. From um, beginning in 1911 uh, through, what does it look like, 1948, I think he did uh, over 14,000 films. <laughs> the dude was busy. This is what uh, filmmaking was like. I mean, I think if you watch the movie Hugo, the Fa- oh, the bits, it is brilliant, fantastic. The, the, yeah, and the bits where you see uh, Melies making the films when he um, working his magic and making those films in the silent era, that was really the spirit of this. And when you see uh, a filmography like Arthur Edson, and you see all these films starting in 1941, and you realize that you know the vast like a third of his films that he worked on were silent. Uh, it, it was a totally different time. I mean, it was this wild and crazy time of filmmaking where people were just trying anything and they were just going crazy and they're just doing all these amazing things. And, and, and he was in that and it was a fantastic time for people to be making movies and just having fun. And uh, I mean, obviously there were budgets to consider, but really it was a time of exploration and a great time for film. He, uh, it's interesting when you look at, at sort of where he was, and as we're talking about ushering in the, uh, you know, sort of the, the film noir and that sort of 
you know, uh, Dutch and German expressionism. And, and here we are at 1941 with the Maltese Falcon. And then he follows up with Sergeant York, Kisses for Breakfast, the male animal Casablanca, Across the Pacific, Shine on Harvest Moon. And, and then his last film, The Fighting O'Flynn in 1948. And he's done. Like he, he, he saw the beginning of this, he saw the beginning and the end of many, you know, sort of eras of film. But here he is sort of right in the middle and he's, he's at the end of his uh, career. What a fascinating time to, to be working. And uh, have worked with James, yeah, he worked with James Whale on the original Frankenstein, The Old Dark House, The Invisible right. Man. I oh, mean, the he, Invisible I, Man. Yeah, I mean, he has uh, been around the block with a lot of these films. And I think, I mean, he was nominated for uh, Best Cinematography um, in 1929, the first year of Oscars. So, I mean, right from the start, he was um, already getting nominated for Oscars. Oh, so, see, I uh, hadn't made this connection. There was, a you know, the next year in 1930, All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, what a fantastic contribution! Yeah. So, so uh, what do we uh, what do we get from from uh, Mr. Edson? Uh, you know what 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 is the the sort of tone that we get from him? What does he uh, how how does he connect to this film? As a cinematographer, um, obviously working in the black and white era, um, um, I, you know, color came in. I looking through his list, I'm not sure if. Uh, if many of the films ended up being in color since it didn't come in until um, later in his career. Um, I, he really learned um, early on. And, you know, this was, they, they, these guys started based on, on painting and they, they learned how to um, do all of this, like you said, you know, built on the influence of the, the German expressionists and all of the amazing stuff that the Germans were doing in the twenties in the silent era with, um, with their films and, and using the light and, and how they were able to play with the light to create these expressionistic palettes in the, in the frame. He used that to his advantage um, in his films. And you can see that in the horror films he did with James Whale. And then in these crime films and, uh, and then, and noir films that he was doing with, um, with Warner brothers. And it, there's a lot that came from that German expressionist style from the twenties that really helped kind of define the, the look he was going for in his films. And I think that's a key element of, of um, what was brought to the Maltese Falcon and what became a big element, that kind of dark and light element in film noir from, from that point forward. The, uh, Let's see here. Uh, da -da -da -da. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I, I was going to go back to the scene, um, to the uh, the long scene, the exposition scene, uh, where we hear Gutman um, right as he's uh, poisoning, um, you know, Humphrey Bogart. Mm. Uh, right as okay. he's poisoning Sam Spade, and and I, but I I want to make sure we don't I don't end the conversation on production too soon. Um, well, while you're looking for that, I yeah. I just found a fun little bit that I I wanted to read. Um, speaking of MacGuffins, this is Hitchcock, uh, who coined the term MacGuffin and came up with the whole idea of a MacGuffin in his films. And uh, as we said, it's it's the 
thing that people are after, and it really doesn't matter. But this is this is how Hitchcock described it um, to Francois Truffaut, yeah, Francois Truffaut in his uh, wonderful book that uh, Truffaut wrote, Hitchcock Truffaut, um, where he just interviewed Hitchcock about all his films. Hitchcock says, "You may be wondering where the term originated. It might be a Scottish name taken from a story about two men in a train. One man says." What's that package up there in the baggage rack? And the other answers, oh, that's a MacGuffin. The first one asks, <laughs> what's a MacGuffin? Well, the other man says, it's an apparatus for trapping lions in the, Scottish, in the Scottish Highlands. The first man says, but there are no lions in the Scottish Highlands. And the other one answers, well, then that's no MacGuffin. So you see that a MacGuffin is actually nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just love that. What do you say to that? Besides, you know, you win, you, you Trump. <laughs> right. Yep. Ah, <laughs> uh, so yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. There, there is a series. There are a series of lines uh, between Gutman and um, uh, Gutman and Sam Spade that I think are fantastic. And I'm looking for the for the, the the that bit of conversation when he's explaining. Uh, the bird, but their their series of of introductory barbs. Uh, you know, you're a you're a closed mouth man. No, I like to talk better and better. I distrust a closed mouth man. He generally picks the wrong time to talk and says the wrong things. Talking something you can't do judiciously unless you keep in practice. Yeah, uh, it's just brilliant. Uh, but there is this other line, and I can't. I don't have the 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 section in front of me where he's talking about drinking. Oh, and that's that's right. It's uh, immediately after, that. or is it no, after before or before? That. It says he's pouring the drink, where where he says he doesn't like it, or he never trusts a man who says wait on his drink because he, you know, if he says he can't hold his liquor, then then he's not a man to be trusted. Or I can't, gosh, I can't remember it. You'll have to find it, but it's a great line. Well, and the the reason I bring it up is because uh, you know specifically because that scene is so artfully uh, and and subtle, uh, subtly executed. Uh, it, it's a long scene. It's a long sequence uh, where we're learning about uh, the, the bird, and what what you hear and what you see if you're you know watching these characters speak is you hear the story of the bird. Uh, but but this that little line was the gun on the mantelpiece uh, when he's talking about you know I don't don't trust a man who you know who doesn't talk. I, I don't trust a man who doesn't drink. As he is speaking, he is uh, Gutman is continuously filling up Sam Spade's glass, even though Sam Spade has not taken a drink, and he doesn't take doesn't take a drink until the very end of the film or at very end of the sequence. Yeah, and that's the second scene because the first scene is where they have that conversation about the drink, and then the second scene is where he poisons him. Right. So that yeah. was the uh, so that's the the part that I think is just. Brilliant. I mean, he goes back and f- and fills this glass up. You know, th- I think I think three times. Uh, maybe it's just two, uh, but the whole time Sam Spade is just working on his cigar, and the, his drink gets you know fuller and fuller, and it, <laughs> it ends up being just beautiful. And it's such an expert example of uh, of that that I I think we comes from um, this sort of. Uh, um, staging for live audiences, you know, uh, when I think we paid more attention when we, uh, you know, uh, to nuance watching a film like this than maybe we do now. And, and, uh, 
I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's too broad of a generalization, but you, I just feel like there is so much more artistry in every single movement of the frame in this sequence that becomes such an educational piece for, for how you communicate a story, um, how you communicate a particular plot point that we have to ultimately earn, um, you know, when Sam Spade's vision gets, uh, blurry. Yeah. It takes a long time to get there, and it ends up being such a powerful moment, I think, the second time you see it. Yeah, and, and, and every time thereafter, because you really can catch all those moments, and you can see Gutman's look as he's, as he's just waiting. And yeah. He's, you know, he's just anticipating this man drinking so that he can they hightail it out of there to go uh, ransack his place. Or and, and you watch the way yeah. he orbits the conversation, right? Uh, Gutman yeah. ends up, and this is a big and you see him keep standing up and he stands up and he walks to the mantle and then he walks around the table to pour another drink um, uh, pour more into spades glass and then he orbits back around and finally at the end it's almost like he can't take the pressure and he actually sits knee to knee right next to sam spade they're actually touching for Uh the first time and and that's as sam spade sort of backs up and realize he can't see anymore and he he stands and stumbles yeah, it's really interesting because it's it's when they're uh, talking a lot about the blackbird, right? Right, right. And and it's uh, it's it's really interesting because it also heightens your the audience members' excitement about what this blackbird is. So so while because that's almost what it feels like the first viewing, you don't catch all of that. You just get this this excitement because you know it looks like Gutman is just really into this story and he's really on the edge of his seat about what this bird means and what it could what it could potentially um reward them with and it's it's just very exciting and and then when when spade uh collapses it's just it's a great you know exclamation point on the end of the scene and the whole time i'm thinking you know there is another movie that's going on out in all of the outside, uh, you know, outside scenes, and it's Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Right. Like, there, this is this movie. It, what's so funny uh, about this movie? And I guess that uh, you know, not that I necessarily need to put my closing point uh, on on this conversation right now but I, what i'm what i find myself thinking after i've seen this movie as many times as i've seen it is that, that um uh this is strangely even though you know they're all wearing suits and they look sharp and they're beautiful and all the all the women are broads you know what i mean like th- right. this is a this is a movie of of stereotypes uh, of glorified stereotypes right now uh, this is an adventure movie and a treasure hunt and yeah. it feels it feels like an adventure when you watch it like it it is paced in such a way that it really uh, y- you you feel like you've been you know you've been driving through the jungle uh, yeah, you've been I mean, on the really you've been on La Paloma about, um, about the people who who die, like the boat captain right. when he stumbles in. Actually, that's a, a nice little cameo by Walter Houston, um, right. uh, John Houston's father, as the boat captain. Um, as he stumbles in and dies, dropping the bird in in Spade's arms, you're less concerned about the guy who just died on the floor, and you're more excited about the fact that they've got the bird in their hands. Exactly. <laughs> exactly that they get they did it they 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 got the bird yeah yeah, yeah. you know there is a did you happen to stumble on uh adam savage's ted talk i didn't 
You know, Adam Savage is the I, no, he not is personally. he is one of the uh, MythBusters. Gotcha. And uh, so he's a Hollywood props guy and special effects guy, and and uh, you know his specialty in terms of you know earning a living prior to being a MythBuster was he would make uh, you know he would make uh, like robotics maquettes you know things like that for special effects and so you know he has an understanding of substances that you know allow you to make things that are fake right well uh there is a ted talk which i will post in the show notes that i think is positively riveting uh that is adam savage's journey to recreate the maltese falcon bird from the movie the prop but to recreate it uh, in a, you know, with the greatest fidelity to the original bird. And a couple of these birds exist, but he has not been able to get them. And so it is his journey to, you know, to take photos and to take photos with, you know, rulers and to ju- take all the, the you know, take the film in slow motion with his calipers and do his best to measure and get the right size and then find the right substance and make the make the model and do the pour. And then he got somebody who would do a bronze casting of it. And then it was too short. And it's, I mean, it is the most wonderfully frenetic search uh, that starts out with his uh, you know, learning how to sculpt uh, by learning how to sculpt this, this uh, a skeleton of a dodo bird to his search for the Maltese falcon. And uh, the punchline, I, I don't want to give it away because it ends up being a phenomenally powerful uh, story uh, of the Maltese falcon and the journey of, of um, the journey of the MacGuffin that we've been talking about. And I think, uh, and so I'm going to post it in the notes and it's, it's, absolutely worth watching it takes about 12 minutes and and uh to get if you if you want to know what the maltese falcon is about watch adam savage talking about his journey to create the bird uh it's beautiful wow it sounds awesome it is really awesome uh so uh, how would you uh what, what else is on your list how would you like to close up your your final take on the movie well you know before I get to that, just other other people that I think are are uh, or or people we've mentioned or haven't mentioned this was Sidney Greenstreet's first film. He had been a stage actor for years before this, and I think he was um you know in the later part of his life when he first acted in this film, and he was actually terrified to be in the film he was he was you know had no he felt he really was just completely out of place and he was shaking on set and he was so nervous and he did a great job and he ended up from this going on to just be in many films and he just was a fantastic actor and knew how to deliver these lines and he was so good and in fact he and Peter Lorre were um, were such a pair from this film that they ended up starring in like seven or nine other films together um, they were just all so right. um, they just played off of each other so well. Um, like I said, this was the first pairing of Humphrey Bogart and John Huston um, as a as a director and actor. And they went on to do a couple other films after this. And I think it was a great pairing. And I think they they it was really kind of the foundation of their friendship, which was which was um, just really magical. And I think they they really knew how to draw the best out of each other in their films. Um. And uh, Adolf Deutsch did the music for this. He's a he's a composer who had been around for um, you know all the early part of of cinema and um, really knew how to write great music for these films. Great music for the Maltese Falcon. There's that dark tone to it, 
just like um, the rest of the noir films. It really lends to that style of filmmaking, and he really tapped into that and knew how to do it well. Great, great music for this film. He went on to uh, do films with Billy Wilder, like Some Like It Hot, The Apartment. Um, he, I think, and he won an Oscar for Oklahoma. And um, he, he was just a composer who did a lot of great music and um, really uh, was great for this era of, of, uh, of film. We, we, you know, we didn't talk about uh, Mary Astor either. Yeah, Mary Astor, who really, I mean, she's been around. She started acting, I think her father got her acting when she was 14 years old. And yeah. she actually hated acting <laughs> when she was young. Uh, she goodness, she did a, a lot of movies. Yeah, yeah. She she just did a lot of stuff. And um, she really, really didn't like it. Her father uh, made her act. And, uh, you know, it was his wish for her to be an actor. And, you know, she finally got out of the silence and into the talkies. And, and uh, you know, she she really just knew how to act. She was a great Hollywood actress. She made the transition from the silent period to, to the uh, sound or to the talkies. She really transitioned well. A lot of people didn't. She really did well. And um, she actually was married to... Um, Howard Hawks's brother and uh, he ended up dying in a plane crash I believe which was which was pretty tragic um, but um, yeah she was in more than 120 films mm. so uh, you know these people who were working in the silent era they uh, silent and the early talkies they made so many films it's just amazing when you look at the list of, of things that they did I mean they were so busy she Truly. was making films into the mid '60s, so Truly. yeah, from the early '20s, right? From 1920, The Scarecrow. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, and, uh, and she and Humphrey Bogart and Sidney Greenstreet all went on with John Huston to uh, make his. Um, I don't believe it was his very next film, but um, it was his next film after after. Uh, Maltese Falcon was a, um, uh, a film called In This Our Life. But that same year, he did a film called Across the Pacific, and all of those people started it again. Hmm. So he had them all again. And actually, in In This Our Life, I believe there's a bar scene where all of these people actually um, pop up as in just little cameos in the background. So, so just kind of an interesting note that uh, all these people were just kind of hanging around and hanging out in the back of each other's films and stuff. So, Well, and at this rate, we may end up doing in this our life down the road someday. At this rate, As yeah. part of our series. We just may. Who else? You got anybody else? No, I think that's it. That I, think, it? I think we covered it pretty well. I, uh, I just added to my Netflix queue the, uh, there is a DVD with both of the, uh, you know, I'm going to go ahead and call them prequels. Uh, the Maltese Falcon, the early '30s, and the '36, uh, the '36 version. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to see both of these back to back now. So. You know, I gotta say, considering uh, there's probably not a huge market for those two films, I'm a little disappointed that when Warner Brothers released um, the Maltese Falcon on uh, DVD and on Blu-ray, that they didn't just include those as as yeah. bonus features. Right. I mean, it's a great bonus feature. Criterion did that with. 
um, The Killing, one of Stanley Kubrick's film where they included his, the film he made right before that, Killer's Kiss, mm-hmm. as, as a bonus feature. And these two films, Satan, Metal Lady, and the 1931 Maltese Falcon, are probably not going to sell that many copies, Warner Brothers, so why not just throw it on there? <laughs> That's right. Greedy monkeys. I tell you. I uh, No, I'm excited about seeing them just because, uh, you, you know, apparently there was some controversy. And I feel like in 70 years, there is a good chance that uh, there will be a podcast saying the exact same things about Spider-Man and the amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> they really so closely together. So oh. I feel like I need to see, you know, see the whole package. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one person that I didn't mention was Elisha mm. Cook Jr., who uh, plays Wilmer the the Gunsel in this film. And right. He was he was just a great actor who played a lot of these kind of downtrodden uh, criminals. And man, he's just got a face that you just remember, and it just one of those great faces that uh, carried through in so many classic. Uh, film noirs and just other films uh, you know he was working into the 80s so fantastic but he was in born to kill he was in dillinger you know he was in uh, uh the great gatsby the version that was made back in the 40s i mean he's been he's a busy man rosemary's baby so sure he yeah he's and and it ends up being a a really important role in this film it ends up it's one of those that doesn't uh you know, he doesn't talk much. He gets riled up at the end. He gets his chance to get riled up. But mostly he gets to be the stoic kind of uh, the foil for Sam Spade's aggression mm-hmm. and wit. But his role in defining uh, Gutman's character uh, and and sort of the illusion of what their relationship may really be, again, it, it sort of it, it goes to what this movie does to push that cultural envelope and, and look at the grit and the seedy underbelly of crime in the treasure hunting business. Uh, you know, I think that's really, it's, it's great. I mean, it was, it is great when you see what, what revolves around this, this, you know, G Gutman's character, right. Um, the fat man, right. Uh, great film. Uh, and, uh, I'm glad we talked about it. So what are we doing? Uh, so this is uh, we're just part of our ongoing series of, of John Houston. I don't even know what we're going to talk about next with John Houston. We're just going to, it's just going to be a surprise. It will be. Each of these John Houston treats will be little surprises little that we, we drop in from time to time. Little Houston love nugget. <laughs> Yum. Good, uh, good talking to you, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise, sir. Do you, Always a pleasure uh, it, talking about the great film. Oh, you know what we got to do? We got to do, uh, we got to tell people where to find us. We got, I can't believe we kept this all the way to the end. Right? That's right. right? That's right. Okay. So, uh, f- first of all, make sure you head over to thenextreel.com to listen to the show. If you're, you know, already listening to the show on thenextreel.com, then make sure you go over to iTunes and uh, leave us a really nice review and subscribe to the show there. Of course, you can subscribe to the show any other place you like. That's uh, any old place you like. You can subscribe you know, on, on your Android device for all we care. Do do it. What do I do it? Nobody's, nobody's stopping to do that. Uh, and you should also somebody, go to... Th- somebody might be. Well, you should always check your surroundings before you to make sure that you're not going to be stopped before you do any subscribing. Always look behind you, Mm -hmm. which is probably good advice anytime. Uh, Keep an eye on your six. That's what we're saying. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) 
I am so military. You should also find us on Facebook.com slash The Next Reel, and you can like us there to receive show updates. We also uh, mirror everything that we post on uh, thenextreel.com slash blog. All the trailers that we talk about end up on the blog. They'll go to Facebook. You can, uh, If you're a Facebookery person, you can go there. And call us, 657-201-REAL, 657-201-7335. The heart of Anaheim. Leave us a message. Bum, we bum, might just play bum, it on the air. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 bum. And and that was the can, heart of Anaheim. That was the heart of Anaheim. I I heard it. Uh, you can write to us at the show at show at thenextreel.com. Drops a line. Totally love hearing from you. Uh, and where where are you on Twitter? I find your lack of faith.com. <laughs> oh yes. No, I add the Creek Film. That's where you can find me on Twitter. And, I'm and at, Facebook. And Facebook. And I am at Pete Wright and uh, Pete Wright on Facebook too. So thanks. Uh, we, we sure appreciate it. We sure appreciate you leaving us all those great iTunes favorable reviews. It absolutely helps other people discover the show. Other movie lovers, go ahead. You're a movie lover. You know you're a movie lover. If you leave us an iTunes review, it's like leaving a breadcrumb. You are uh, you are Hansel and Gretel, and you're dropping, your reviews are the breadcrumbs. No, you, know what, you know what the reviews are? What? It's the stuff dreams are made of. <laughs> I'm actually uh, glad. I'm really uh, glad you interrupted that because it, I was going into a horrible. This is a really bad. It answer. was going to be a horrible <laughs> murder metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so save. You've got to save. You want to. You're a child in an oven, and you want to be saved by Hunter. And your reviews will do that. This is the grim fairy tale review. I gotta go. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I'm gonna hang it up. Hang up. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.